my boss recently mentioned to me that we should qualify grant opportunities. What exactly does this entail? So in a nutshell, it helps you determine which grants you want to pursue. Uh, you can do this in a variety of different ways. What I have seen work most effectively is that you, you come up with this kind of set criteria that, that helps you determine the likelihood of, of whether you might get the grant if you apply for it or choose to apply for it. So it, I mean, what I love about it is it helps if you actually take the time and discipline to do something like this, it helps you eliminate countless hours or time spent on something just because you get so into the routine of writing grants that you, that you end up going after stuff that was ridiculous and was such a far stretch that it was probably a big waste of your time anyway to do it. So this sort of helps give you a step back to just say, let's take an analysis. Let's step back before we go after this. And so some of the criteria that I've seen work well is, um, right, have we received this grant before? That's a pretty good criteria that you might want to do it again. Whether, do we have a relationship with a funder? And if we do, then in general, that's usually a green light that you're in more of a favorable spot to do it. Uh, do we have the capacity to even execute on this? And, and is this aligned with our strategic plan, our mission? And do we have the, you know, beyond just capacity to deliver, do we really want to do the work, like whatever this grant criteria is, do we even want to do this or do we kind of feel like we're we're looking to go in some new direction? So that kind of goes back to the strategic plan question, but those are just, and you know, the way it, I've seen it work well is people will have a, like sometimes they'll give percentages to these things and you know, it's a guessing game, right? Like, but, or like it scores one to five, right? On each one of these criteria, like, okay, so, I have a relationship with a funder, so that gives me five points because that makes me much more competitive for this. And you can kind of go down and then, then tally it up, whatever your system is. There's no kind of rhyme or reason other than just having the system and then looking at, all right, this shows that with how many hours we have in the day, we have, you know, a 20 of total total opportunities, but there's only seven that really are going to be the ones we prioritize. And hey, if we get through those seven, then we have extra time to hit the others. I, I love it because this just makes you a lot more strategic, in my opinion, like with with going after the kind of stuff you should. Yeah, I'd say there's the only thing worse than going after a, like spending the time and energy to go after a grant that you probably don't need and then not getting it is getting it. Because then you you run the risk of not being able to perform on that grant and that jeopardizes any future grants that are more appropriate for you because the funders hate it when you you accept money and then you can't do it. Like you have to give it back or oh. you do kind of a marginal job or you need to do a bunch of like change orders to get them to make it make sense for you. It's, you know, and it's hard to say, especially because the calculus is like, like you said, like, can we get this grant? That's like if it's something that you probably could get. Um, it's really hard for that, you know, especially the development person that's responsible for it to tell them, yeah, sorry, you can't put that in your portfolio this year because that's not going to be something that we're going to be able to perform on. And so you've got this internal struggle. <laughs> like, do we, even though we could get the money, should we, should we, should we get it or should we leave it for somebody else to do and then wait for something that's more appropriate for us? 
And it feels like there's also an opportunity with something like this. I, I don't, I am not a fan of one person making this decision. So I get different org structures might warrant different things. But I have always said with being a good grant writer, it is a team sport. It is, you are the lead. You may be doing the research analysis writing, but you're just, you're playing that. That's your role. What about the program people who are delivering on the grant? What about your finance person? So I think it also, if there was a way to create a system where you got maybe a few of your key people, depending on how like right larger organization is in a room, maybe it's once a month, right? Or once a quarter to look at the upcoming quarter opportunities and kind of go through this rating self, you know, system yourself. Then you really make sure everyone's bought on because how many times, Andy, and I know you've seen this grant writers that then like write something that someone else and no one knows they were even going after it. They get it. And then, Hey, <laughs> deliver on it. Like <laughs> that doesn't build relationships. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where hosts Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I'm Andy Schacht. I'm here with my fantastic co-host, Stacey Wedding. We start almost all of the episodes just this exact same way, <laughs> using these exact same words, which I yeah. think is funny um, because we do them all individually each time. We probably could have just taped one and used it, but then you guys would know. Then everybody listening would be like, have I heard this one before? Maybe I've heard it before. This beginning sounds familiar. <laughs> So that's why they're different so that you don't feel like, I, I think I've heard this one because right. sometimes the questions get a little um, familiar. Like we've been doing this, we've got <laughs> 120 okay, episodes yeah. or so. We've been doing it for over five years now. Right. And so has it been five years? It's Maybe that's be not five right. Five years in May. I think we figured five that out. Five years in May. Yeah. So we've, we've, we've outlasted like 99.9% .9 of other podcasts at this point. So maybe Go longevity team. is good. <laughs> Go team, nonprofit, everything. <laughs> exactly. So the way this works is you send us questions, either questions that you have or questions that someone else has that you want to hear us um, either answer or if we can't. Or we think that a guest expert would be amazing for a particular question. We will go and get a guest expert. Um, you send those to us. We do our best to answer them. And uh, we're back here every two weeks with the exact same intro, but slightly different each time. I'm a longtime listener of your podcast and have a fear that you're going to roll your eyes when I tell you that I recently established a nonprofit. Through comments you've both made and what I've heard in other places, I've become acutely aware of the bad reputation founders seem to get. I don't want to become one of those horror stories, so I wonder if you would both share your top three do's or top three don'ts to help me avoid this thing called founder's syndrome. Okay, so I have to ask you, Andy, did you roll your eyes? I didn't. I think it's a great question to ask at the beginning of your journey, right? Not like, yeah, I don't want to, let's not, I, I think I want to hear what you have to say first before I go. I, I know, I know, but I, <laughs> yes, yes, no, I, and I just wanted, I, the person who was brave enough, right? Cause it sounds like they may have felt like they had to be brave to share this with us because they yeah. thought our eyes would roll. And, and, you know, I just appreciate, I think I'm in the same boat as you, like someone that's asking this at the start instead of, you know, like net, being so oblivious. I mean, I think that's one of the things 
um, that would probably be on my don't list, which I'll get to right in a minute. But I mean, I do want to take a moment though and say something, at least one of the things I do love about founders is, is they really like, they have this vision, they see something differently than the rest of us do. They see a gap and they want to fix it. They want to fill it. You know, they see this possibility of what could come with, with change. And so I don't want to dismiss that. So although we sort of roll our eyes about it's, it's more about, um, founders that don't maybe do their research to start with. And there's some other things like that they, they get their start and there's like a nonprofit doing the same thing that they want to do and, and they just didn't know it. And so I think it's the lack of sort of care or research or somehow thinking that an idea is uniquely your own. That is what is kind of the part that grates on my nerves with founders or people who tend to start nonprofits. Right. But in general, like they have this amazing spirit and vision. And they, they kind of are like this, I joke and say, it's like a dog with a bone. Like they, they won't leave well enough alone. Like they just want to, like, they are so driven to fix or solve whatever it is they've identified that they're going to make it happen. And I love that spirit. So I do want to just kind of start out on the box with that. Um, I think, you know, I think for me, I think of some of the do's, of a founder. I mean, again, like I think the research piece to what I was saying, I think doing some research, like making sure you're always, I mean, you've already established a nonprofit. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping you've done that already, but like really seeing what else exists out there in your space. How are you uniquely different? Where can you leverage sort of this whole idea of like a, a network of, of others that are doing this work? Um, like, are you, are you doing something that doesn't exist? And are you sure of that? So like, I, I do think always basing it in some sort of data or research, not only at the beginning when you're getting your start, but just ongoing makes for a, a better organization. Um, and I think also, I would say, as far as like another do, um, reading, you know, kind of differentiating urgent from important, like thinking about, um, I have found in my experience with founders, everything is <laughs> like, it had to be done yesterday. And there is, there is no sort of in between of knowing, um, that you're not going to solve the world's problems in one day, because I think that actually leads to burnout and leads to founders, um, fizzling or getting really discouraged or, or just like a whole host of unhealthy behaviors that lead from that kind of not being able to differentiate urgent from important. So I think that would be kind of another tip I would give or like a, a do. Um, and I was going to say, and this is probably like, I think it would be interesting to read about other founders journeys because there are books out there. So the founder of Teach for America, uh, Wendy Kopp, there's a great book. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but we'll definitely look it up and put it in the show notes. But it's it's about her journey as a founder. And, and, and she talks about some of those mistakes, some of those trials, those tribulations that she has faced along the way and how she's overcome them. And, you know, now she's sort of removed herself from that original role. Um, I mean, she'll always be the founder, but but her journey through the organization and its different life cycles has changed. And I think that would be actually a really smart thing to do as a new founder is, is kind of read up and like learn from others mistakes and, and make sure you don't, you know, 
do them or make them yourself. So I don't know. That's that's a few off the top of my head of like the do's. Um, how about you, Andy? Yeah, I think I, I agree with everything you said. I think the one of the things that we've seen that we sort of call founder syndrome is is usually not right at the beginning of an organization's life. It's not something that you start off and do it wrong. It usually starts to appear in the sort of adolescent stage of the nonprofit where you're going from a a board that has an active role in day-to-day activities and the founder has an active role in day-to-day activities. And then you've brought on professional staff and you're having a really hard time turning over those responsibilities to the professional staff. That's what sort of the definition of founder syndrome is, is when it's no longer your responsibility, you keep getting in the way because you have this sense that you're the only person that can do this right. You're the only person that knows how this works. And and it comes from a lot of times a, a place of success. If you've been good at fundraising and you've been good at talking to donors, you don't want to hand over those relationships. It's really hard to hand over those relationships to a new person. And so the founder has this instinct that, look, just move. I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> it's like, get out of the chair. I'm going to take care of this for yeah. you. And what it does is it ends up, it makes the board second guess the new staff. It, it It's disheartening to the staff because they say, look, I took this job as an executive director, but I'm not really the executive director. I just rubber stamp everything the founder tells me to do or or every time every time we go into a board meeting and I say something the founder disagrees with me and it undermines me and th- so those are the kinds of things that just make the 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 nonprofit not as effective as it can be just because you're sort of self-sabotaging you're sabotaging your own organization by not ever really letting go so that's where it tends to you know, that's the sort of definition of founder syndrome and that's where it tends to go wrong i think Ways to avoid that are really sort of recognizing, spending time recognizing when your organization is approaching that stage. And it's not going to be for a while. Nobody, you don't reach adolescence overnight. It's something that happens over a period of years. First, you have to get past the survival stage because they the the survival rate of brand new profits is very, very low. They're, they don't disappear quite as fast as regular small businesses disappear, but that's because they because they're sort of donor funded, they tend to hang on in their death throes for years and years and years. You know, they're unaffected, they're ineffective, but it doesn't really matter because you're not paying staff. And so your expenses are really low and you just kind of, you're sort of on your deathbed for years without ever doing anything. But, but if you can get past that stage and you get to the point where you finally are hiring staff and you've got professional folks coming to work for you, then it's just be very cognizant of, of what you're good at, what you want to hand over to the new person, why you're handing it over to the new person, what strengths, the reason you're hiring them isn't just so that you can relax and then throw grenades over the wall, like every <laughs> once in a while, right? You're, the reason you're hiring somebody is because you want to make the organization better. So you kind of recognize that. And then, and then, and then if, if you're not the kind of person that can let go because your personality or your self-worth is so wrapped up in your organization, you may have to step away completely. You may have to say, look, I'm not going to be on the board. Because I know I can't control myself. I'm a, I mean, that's sort of my personality. Like I can't, I, I couldn't like just wander off into a different role and say, yeah, you do this now because I'd always be going back and like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. the reason we did it that way, the old way is because, blah, you know, that's to be the worst. <laughs> I would it, be the worst at that. It's tough though, right? Yeah. It's tough, Andy. That's such a tough thing, right? Because, you know, it's almost like you want, and I do want to talk about that for a minute because I think that people like, 
it's frustrating when you're the new person and you're like, yeah, here we go down, like a walk down memory lane again, right? Here we go. Revisionist history or whatever. Like it's annoying as all get out. And I also think it's, we've got to give a little pause and think about like from the other person's standpoint, they're actually sharing it with us. I mean, I think most of the time, some of it's not wanting to let go, but some of it is just pure. Like, I want you to hear like all the battle wounds I had to get to that decision and why we made that decision, because I want you to like, like, I think at least for me, there's a part of that that comes with it is it's not just, I mean, yeah, there's a control part for sure, but there's also like a, but I want you to like not screw up like I did. Right. I mean, and so I don't, I feel like we've got to give a little more grace. I mean, I think it's a good rule of thumb not to, to try not to do that, but also, or like maybe it's just the offer of, Hey, if you want to hear a little more about why we went in that direction ever, like instead of going and just unsolicited, giving it to them, right? Like, <laughs> Hey, listen to me and all the reasons why we chose that um, direction or why we didn't do it that way. Like it, instead, maybe it's, Hey, listen, I like, I don't want to get in your way. I don't want to stomp on your parade, but like, uh, yeah, like there was some thought behind that. And if you ever want to hear about it, happy to share it. That's hard to do that too, though. Right. Cause you just oh, want to yeah. share it. Yeah, you you want to you know you want to sort of pass your wisdom on in a way that's that's constructive, and and sometimes that let means you got to let somebody else make their own mistakes. I mean, you know, and it's because your personality is so wrapped up in the mission of this organization because you started it, it was your idea, you got it off the ground, you did all this hard work, you got it to a stage where it's being passed off to somebody else. It's really hard. You're right to step back and say, okay. I'm not, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It's probably like trying to teach your kids to drive a car. I think <laughs> it's like, like, I don't know, with the, yeah, the, oh. I, like, <laughs> I'm going to tell you all the things that I learned by crashing into things, um, <laughs> but maybe you have to crash into things to learn those things too. I don't know. <laughs> I know there is something to be said about that, right? Yeah. Well, I think that also like the other things that come to mind for me, and this may be more of a don't it's, um, it's a pet peeve I have when I talk to, when I talk to founders and I've, I've run into this as, you know, someone who started my company, it's a little different, but it's, it's, there's some similarities, right. That this sort of idea of, of it's all about the founder. It's like, it's, it becomes more about the founder. Sometimes don't become that founder that it's just about the founder and not about the larger cause or the mission. Like it's about the we and not, just the I. And so even just that wording makes a difference. Like I decided this, I did this, I did that. Like it's, it, there's also sort of, it's just, I find it grating on my nerves when I hear that. Cause I just kind of go, there's a whole lot of we there. Like you couldn't have done this uh, alone. Yes. Yes. You did it. You started it. There's still people who helped you along the way. And, um, we also helps kind of set this message or this context, like there's a village of support. There's people we're serving. Like there's, there's, there's others. It's not just me. I actually think that makes you look stronger, but I think founders fall into that trap of I, 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 I did this. I'm amazing. Blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, I would say I, that's one thing I would say don't do. Right. Um, and probably you wouldn't do that because given just your question, you don't, you don't strike me as probably someone who would fall into that trap. I also think do not take your passion and the amount of energy, time, resource you're willing to commit and expect that from other people. When you start to hire staff, 
or other volunteers, people care. They are never going to care as much as you care. Like they didn't start this. And I have a lot of dialogues and kind of coaching sessions with executive directors who are founders and just say, you know, no one seems to care like I do. No one seems to put in the time I do. No one does this. And it is just something we fall into because we're we're looking for sort of our tribe of people just like us and and that doesn't exist. And and so sort of being really honest and real with yourself, for some people, this is going to be just a job. For some people, this is going to maybe feel good for them if they're a volunteer for you, but it's not something they're going to put their entire being into and every ounce of energy. And and for some people, they're actually going to have boundaries around like work and life. And and so I I think that is a really important thing because that feeling that can come the resentment that comes as a founder feeling like that really can eat away at you and just start to, I don't know, chip away at some of the moments of joy uh, and and really also can permeate kind of the culture of an organization um, and, and make everyone feel like, wow, like this person's got crazy unrealistic expectations. I'm not listening to them. So like, I think you also have to just kind of kind of check yourself to when you start to feel like that or do that. Uh, and, and the other thing, do not hoard relationships. Okay. So like, that's the other thing as organizations back to your, what you were saying, Andy, about like the growth and the life cycle and the developmental cycle, as you start to grow and maybe you start to get some staff, there's always this tendency. It's my relationship. I own it. Like it's, I'm the one who had it. And the founder has an important role in a lot of the relationships, right? Because you can tell the founder's story and people love hearing the 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 person who mastered the idea to come up with this nonprofit. Like people love that, right? And the thought leadership that 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 took. But but like it is you are destroying like the exact thing you're trying to build, you are destroying by just hoarding those relationships and not, you know, not kind of in bringing in other people, maybe spheres of influence and people outside of your own little circle and, and not tapping into others in your organization who have those same spheres of people um, that they can bring in. And, and again, sort of like feeling like you are the one to do it all instead of realizing, hey, this is like going to be so much more powerful if we get a lot of diverse people, a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of people who have different connections than I do imagine what we can build. And so I, I think there is, and then like introducing some of your relationships, the people that like know you, they, they need to be introduced to other people at, like in the organization, in my opinion, because they need to know it's more than just you. And they need to, to see that there's a machine. It's a machine. It's like an organization, right? It's operating with or without you so that at some point when you do decide to kind of move on, um, if you do decide to move on or move past that organization, you, you really set it up for success, uh, long-term success. So, uh, yeah, that, and you know, that also just, I mean, Andy, I don't know what your thought is on this. There's some different articles out there on the idea of what does a founder do when we think about like when they leave an organization, what do they do? Um, like, do they still 
play a role like if they if they were serving on the board or they were a staff member like what does that look like when they want to retire or move on to their next big bold idea and my general gut reaction is don't do it right like <laughs> don't join the board don't stay on the board don't join the staff or move to a different role when you step down. Don't. Like, I don't know. That's my my gut. And there's a lot of nuance to it. And I want to put that out there because there's situations where if you have a really emotionally intelligent human and the right culture that it could potentially work. But more often than not, it really confuses people and it doesn't let the organization grow into the next chapter. So don't don't do that if you can avoid that. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I just want to expand a little bit on, on, I think it was your second, both your second and third points kind of touched on it. But the because you're thinking about this at the outset and you're this is something that that's on your mind now, I think that what we've seen is the most successful nonprofits are the ones where where everybody's bought into the mission and it's a group effort. Everybody's pushing it forward because they all recognize that it's a really good idea. So probably one of your first jobs will be to convince other people that this is a good idea. And the more, and you're going to have to do that with donors. You're going to have to do that with the board. You're going to have to do that with staff members. You're going to have to do that for the, in the program areas where you're working, letting people know that this solution to our nonprofit challenge or our, our whatever challenge it is, is, is the right solution. And so you're kind of in a sales mode. So as long as you keep that in mind, that you're convincing other people to go along with you, I think you'll solve some of the founder syndrome problems at the outset, because you'll have people who, it isn't just you doing all the work. It isn't just you with the idea. It's everybody working together um, that you may, have, you may have seeded the idea, but it isn't your idea. It's the organization's idea. And, and if you can keep that in mind, I don't think you're going to have any problems with founder syndrome at all. A nonprofit organization I work with recently shared a grant contract agreement. The grantor, another nonprofit, appears to be passing through funding from another source, but it isn't apparent. What obligation does the grantee have to understand where the funding originates and how the source may impact their responsibilities for post-award management? (laughs) This question makes the whole process sound really shady, doesn't it? It kind of does. (laughs) And something about the the question hurts my brain a little. Like I really have to focus on like, okay, the grantor, the grantee, the post-award man. I don't know, something about it. I like it. it. It's a very succinct question. They've packed a lot into the one question. So I'm going to summarize the question in probably more words, which is we got money from a nonprofit. They got it from some other source. Do they have to tell us where they got it from? Right. Right. And then, and, and, and the answer other half of it is because if they don't, like, how do we know what we're supposed to do? Like, right. if we don't know what the what the source donor wants, we're not going to be able to comply with it. So I think there's two answers to this question. It depends on who that initial source was. So if that initial source was the federal government, 100% they have to tell you. They have to give you all of the information about where that grant came from, because number one, you have responsibilities in how you're going to respond to the grant, the things you need to track, 
There's rules about what you can and can't spend, what expenses are allowed or unallowed, and and they should be passing that information along to you as well, right? There should be a budget that says, here's what you can spend money on, here's what you can't spend money on, that kind of stuff. You, You probably have a clue if it's a federal grant or if it's a federal grant that got sourced through three layers before it got to you too. It's still a federal grant. The other side of that one is you have to put it on your CIFA which is the Schedule of Expenditures of Federal Awards, SEFA. So that's like a document that you need to do that says this money came from the federal government. And they're trying to keep track of whether you got to that $750,000 threshold and have to do the single audit. So that's that's another reason. Um, if it's not a federal grant, I'd say the answer is probably no, um, because there's this thing that you allow donors to remain anonymous. And if a donor asks your organization that they want that donation to be kept anonymous, whether it's a grant or not, um, usually you want to comply with that. You want to, and there, there's legitimate reasons to be able to, to, to keep a grant or some sort of donation anonymous. So, so they may not be able to tell you, I think you can ask. I I don't think it's going to hurt anybody's feelings. If you say, would you mind telling me is the source of this grant, like a, is it a federal government grant or did it come from a private donor? And is that private donor requested to be anonymous? If, if you don't feel comfortable with their answer, you don't have to take the money, right? If you don't, you know, if you think it came from somebody you think is evil and you just don't want to engage, then you certainly have the opportunity to say, no, thank you, but it can't hurt to ask. I don't think it can hurt to ask, but they don't have, unless it's the federal government, they have no obligation to tell you really. Well, and you see this kind of arrangement that's being described very much with like intermediary organizations, fiscal sponsor kind of organizations. Yep. uh, Right. And so if you think about as just kind of a plain example, like community foundations, United ways, or even Fidel, you know, the commercial you know, uh, trust funds, like, you know, like the fidelity donor giving, advised, fund right, stuff, donor yeah. advised funds. Right. Like, so I was sitting there going like all of those, right. Could receive money from a donor. They are themselves a nonprofit and then they're passing it along to you because the donor advised, but to, to your point, Andy, like the donor may be like, Hey, yeah, like I don't want to be harassed. Part of why I'm using a third party intermediary is I don't want to someone to keep coming back and asking me, right? right? So, so like I mean, I think you do have to honor it, but to your point, there's never I think a problem unless you got some something that was, you know, outright told you not to ask. Like there should never be a reason to not say listen, like and I think you put it in the context of listen, we want to properly thank someone and we want to actually um report back on how we're using the money in the way that it was intended. And so is, can you give us more guidance? Like, so maybe then that intermediary becomes the go between to get that info, or can we even send you, I've seen organizations do this before where they actually send the thank you letter. Like it's, it's always a little, uh, less personal because you don't know the person and like that you don't know who get like is this a corporation is this an individual is this a family foundation who's like actually behind giving us this this grant but whatever it is like hey like intermediary you know organization can you pass along we're going to send you thank you um we're also going to send you maybe just like a real like when when after we've spent the award like if it was designated for something we're going to just give you kind of a very um, high level kind of overview, if that's what your your organization's kind of protocol is, and and would you mind passing that along? And so that's the other thing I've seen that works. And so, so sometimes you you don't have that direct access, but it's still if that intermediary is doing their job, then they should be passing that along to the original donor. And so 
at some point you got to just say, I, I trust the process. Yes, I'm curious as all get out, but I got to put that curiosity aside and respect uh, the, the way this donor has chosen to give, this grantor has chosen to give. Yeah. And then, I mean, I even had a scenario, it's, it's been a while now, but I had a scenario where we were getting money through a pass-through organization. I know that pass-through organization was taking a 20% cut. So someone was giving them $100,000, they were taking $20,000 and then giving the money to us. And then we would take that $80,000 and do what they said that they were going to do. And I groused about it. But at the end of the day, I held my nose and did it because I knew that we were capable of doing the work. And at the end of the day, our constituents were getting the services they needed because we were really good at what we did. And the organization that was the pass-through organization, like, whatever, like <laughs> that the, they can't keep that up forever. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to be, you know, like it's not my job to meet retribution on nonprofits that suck. That's, that's yeah. between, that's between them and their conscience and their donors. Right. If there's like, you know, why I just found out that they could do this for, you know, 20% cheaper. Like right. why? Well, it's because we've been using them the whole time. So mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes you just have to kind of go, okay, well, this is going to help us reach our mission. So, so I guess, The inefficiency of the system shouldn't hurt my feelings. Hey, hey, hey. Okay, that sounded like Fat Albert, right? Was that Fat Albert? (laughs) (laughs) All right, so there's a closing for you. Did I make you laugh for anyone who knows Fat Albert? I felt like I was channeling Fat Albert, even though I've got a cold in my nose and I sound funky anyway, might as well be Fat Albert along the way. So thank you for listening to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Andy and I love uh, answering your questions and just connecting in this way with each other and with you. And one of the things I was thinking about For anyone who is a Brene Brown fan and listens to Brene's podcasts, um, I know she's got a couple. At the end, she does these rapid fire questions like of her guests. And it's always interesting because I'm always like, how would I answer those? So I was thinking that could be kind of fun to mix it up since Andy and I are always trying to get creative, like how we end these things. Why don't you send us at least one question that like, or a couple questions or heck, if you're feeling it, like send us a list of 10. We don't care. But like, we will do rapid fire like of of each other at the one at the end of one of these episodes. And you can get to know us a little bit more and our quirky brains, which you probably already know are quirky from listening, but uh, just maybe something I'm channeling my inner Brene Brown. So uh, play along with us, text us, uh, send us a, a message with your question. And then of course, your real life questions, right? Like your questions about what's going on in your head, heart, all those things are related to nonprofits and send those to us, nonprofiteverything.com or any of the social channels, you know, Facebook and we've got the Discord channel and we're on LinkedIn and, you know, who who else knows where there's probably more I'm missing, but there you go. Uh, we look forward to hearing your questions.
Everything.